I'm Russ Portanoy, the Executive Director of the MGHS Institute for Innovation and Palliative Care, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the 11th webinar in the 2017 MGHS and HPCO Interprofessional Webinar Series in Palliative Care. Today's webinar is focused on an interdisciplinary case conference. Well, specifically, we'll be discussing a challenging case, an 83-year-old woman with dementia and weight loss. The discussion today will include Dr. Mara Lugasi, a senior hospice medical director, Joyce Palmieri, vice president of clinical services, Linda Norris Sturt, social work manager, and Tim Kirk, the ethics consultant, all from MJHS Hospice and Palliative Care. These are our financial disclosures. So let me set the, set the stage here. This case takes place in a nursing home. The patient has been in the nursing home for a long time and is an 83-year-old woman with dementia and weight loss. The nursing home has access to an interdisciplinary palliative care team which performs consultations. Once a week, the team convenes to discuss the cases that were seen during the prior week. We're talking about this case today because it reveals that the management of artificial nutrition in nursing home patients with advanced dementia requires an understanding of the clinical indications and contraindications and the ethical framework for decision making. So let's start the case. The patient is an 83-year-old woman who has been a resident in a nursing home for nine years and has advanced Alzheimer's dementia and recent progressive weight loss. The nursing home medical director referred the patient to palliative care after the patient's daughter requested placement of a percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy to a feeding tube. Specifically, the medical director's referral read as follows. The patient has severe Alzheimer's dementia. She had a serious infection months ago that led to weight loss. It's now resolved, but she continues to lose weight and her daughter requests PEG insertion. Daughter has been very involved in the care. We'd like to explore any ways of dealing with weight loss short of another feeding tube. Would appreciate help with management. Thank you. Let me give you some background to this case. During the week following referral to palliative care, the patient is seen in the facility by members of the palliative care team, including the physician, nurse, and social worker, who now join me at the IDT. The members of the team have spoken to nursing home medical director and the director of social work and, has, and have also met with the patient's daughter. As I said, we'll be meeting uh, today to talk about what we've determined from the case review and hopefully develop a plan of care that's useful to both the patient and the daughter and the, and the nursing home staff. At our IDT meeting, we typically begin with a review of nursing home records, then we review the patient visits and meetings that we've held with individuals uh, who are stakeholders in this case, and then discuss the assessment and the plan. In this case, the nursing home records reveal that the patient was admitted to this facility about nine years ago after losing the ability to cook or clean or bathe or dress without help. The history included memory loss that dated back almost a decade prior to admission to the nursing home a diagnosis of Alzheimer's dementia that was made about two years after the onset of cognitive problems, and a course characterized by progression interspersed with stable periods, usually just three to four months, but on two occasions, close to a year. Despite these stable periods, the course of the illness overall has been relentlessly down, downhill. The patient's daughter had power of attorney and completed the paperwork required for the nursing home admission. There was no patient-appointed healthcare agent, but the nursing home has recognized the daughter as the patient's surrogate decision-maker per state law. The notes have documented that the patient declined, uh, had, had declined to appoint an agent when she had decisional capacity, and of course now she has no decisional capacity. <clears throat> the patient is widowed and has no other children. On admission to the nursing home years ago, the patient already had profound memory loss and confabulated, but she could answer simple questions at that time. She could walk using a walker. She had urinary incontinence and was able to spoon feed uh, soft foods. After her admission to the nursing home, periods of decline continued, again alternating with more stable periods. And about three years ago, the notes revealed that the patient's course had progressed such that she was no longer walking and was spending most of her day sitting in a chair with support. She was napping frequently and when awake, she made eye contact with others and could smile. She ate a pureed diet with spoon feeding and maintained her weight and there were no periods of agitation or signs of distress. 
By one year ago, however, the nursing home notes revealed that the patient's tone and strength had diminished so that it was difficult to keep her safely in a chair. She was in bed most of the day. Spontaneous verbalizations had stopped, and she would only occasionally smile, with, usually without any apparent meeting. She also had developed a small pressure ulcer on her heel, which would resolve and then reappear. However, she did continue to eat a pureed diet with spoon feeding, but the feedings were requiring longer periods to complete the meal. Now, our notes uh, were, re were reviewed by all of our uh, clinicians, and I know that uh, uh, Joyce, you spent a little time looking specifically at the involvement of the daughter. What did you find? Yes, yes. The patient's daughter visited her mother at the nursing home two or three times a week for over a period of the last five years. There were notes documenting meetings with the nursing home staff, as well as the daughter's involvement in the decisions. She was with her mother during most of the time and during much of the time of the two hospitalizations. So the notes suggested that the daughter's involvement with the case, with the patient's care, which was highlighted by the referral notice, is accurate. Yes. About four months ago, the patient was hospitalized, and a summary from the hospital described the diagnosis as bronchitis. She again quickly responded to antibiotics and fluids. She returned back to the nursing home after a week. Subsequently, nursing home staff noted a change in the patient's response to the spoon feeding. She pocketed the food and would close her mouth. She appeared to be eating less than half the quantity of food she had been eating prior to hospitalization. The patient's weight, which had been 115 to 118 pounds for many years, then started to drop to 105 pounds after this recent hospitalization. About six weeks ago, a meeting was documented that included the daughter, several nursing home staff, and the medical director. The meeting uh, suggested that the nasogastric tube, the medical director suggested the nasogastric tube for supplemental feedings. He indicated the seriousness of a 10% weight loss and stated that the tube feedings would hopefully be temporary, allowing the patient to stabilize and regain her strength after the pneumonia. The daughter agreed to the NG tube placement. And just correct me if I'm wrong, but the notes didn't indicate anything about the daughter's understanding that this might be a short-lived feeding trial. No, unfortunately not part of the issue. Uh, Dr. Lugasi, you were involved mm -hmm. in, in looking at the patient and dealing with some of the issues related to the nasogastric tube. Can you fill us in with that history? Sure. So essentially what happened after the decision was made uh, to place the tube, um, she was transported, transported to the office of a GI specialist who went ahead and placed a small bore nasogastric tube. And then after this was placed, the patient started receiving a gravity based infusion through the tube. Now, initially, she did have some diarrhea after she started receiving the feeds, but after she was treated with loperamide and they went down on the rate a bit, the diarrhea did resolve. Um, however, the patient, after the tube was placed and she was receiving the feeds, she was noted on, on multiple occasions to be moaning and to appear uncomfortable, as it was described, um, with the feeds and, and the tube placement. And she was also noted to need elevation of the head of her bed while she was receiving the feeds. So about two weeks um, after the feeds were placed, um, she was recorded to have a three-pound weight gain. Unfortunately, after this, the tube became dislodged. Um, so after another discussion with the patient's daughter, she, uh, the patient was transported back to the GI specialist's office who went ahead and replaced the tube. Um, at this point, the feeds were restarted, um, but after this initial period, the chart doesn't document any further weight gain after this initial three pounds. So after she was now receiving the, the second replacement of the tube, the patient's daughter became increasingly concerned because her mother was developing a nasal abrasion from the tube and was continuing to moan uh, while she was receiving the feeds. Um, and her daughter was now attributing this to the fact that the patient was distressed by the tube. So at this point, um, she requested that this nasogastric tube be replaced by a peg tube, which she felt would be less distressing to her mother. So after this request was made, the medical director is now asking for the palliative care consultation. Okay. Now other, there is other history um, that's um, 
could be relevant in the in the patient's nursing home chart, and I'll just quickly go through that. Uh, the patient has other medical diagnoses, including a history of herpes zoster 10 years ago, which resolved, a history of hypertension, which is no longer being treated, a history of hyperlipidemia. She had a left total hip replacement 13 years ago and a right total hip replacement 12 years ago. Her only medications, uh, rather remarkably, are simvastatin and aspirin. The notes also uh, reveals a little bit more about the patient's social history and family history, and I know, Linda, you were so focused on that when you met with the daughter. Maybe you can fill us in on these, uh, on what the chart said here. Yeah, and all of these aspects play into the daughter's difficulty, you know, in trying to come to a decision. So the patient is African-American. Uh, her one daughter is 63 years old. Um, the husband, her husband died 40, of oh, 40 years, died 13 years ago. Um, she was involved with the church prior to becoming sick, but there hasn't been any involvement for the patient or the daughter um, for the entire time that she's been in the nursing home, which has been nine years. She was a third grade teacher for many years. Uh, not a lot of money, small pension, long-term care insurance. Uh, that was exhausted two years ago, so she's now receiving Medicaid. There are no other visitors to the nursing home. It's only the daughter. No history of smoking or drug use noted. Um, so from carefully reading the records and talking to some of the staff at the nursing home and meeting with the daughter, um, it was found out the patient's parents died in an automobile accident when she was a little girl. And she has no more brothers or sisters. They all have passed away. They've all died. And they were all in their 70s and 80s. So the only family member left is this one daughter who also has no siblings. Right. So. so the patient has a surrogate, recognized as surrogate by the nursing home, yes. who has been involved in the care, yes. but both the patient and the daughter are otherwise without much support. Yes. And so they're very, they've always been very attached to each other. Right. Okay. Well, that um, review of the nursing home records, I think, provided some of the background. And as I indicated before, part of our process is always to speak to the important stakeholders in any case, especially a case like this that involves conflict between the patient's family and the, and the facility. So let's review uh, what, what you all found as you examined the patient and, and talked to the daughter and others taking care of her. Uh, Dr. Lugasi, you actually saw the patient at a medical exam, mm -hmm. right? I did. So on my assessment, she clearly had a very advanced dementia. I would characterize her as a FAST 7E, so basically bedbound, nonverbal, minimal interaction with the environment. She did moan when she was repositioned. She was noticeably cachectic. Um, on her physical exam, she had multiple contractures of both the large and the small joints, and she also had multiple pressure ulcers. She had stage one ulcers um, at the elbows, the ears, and the heels, and stage two at the sacrum and the buttocks, so really multiple sites. And maybe you can just comment on the nasal abrasion. How severe is that? It, it was what I would describe as a, as a moderate abrasion. But certainly something yeah. that could be causing her distress. Yeah, absolutely. So in addition to that, I also spoke with the, um, the medical director at the nursing home, and he described the what he described is that he had initially framed this as a feeding trial um, to the patient's daughter, and he felt like they had done their trial and that it had declared itself really to not be effective in the fact that there was no further weight gain beyond that initial three pounds despite the ongoing feeds. And based on this, he had recommended to the daughter that they just go ahead at this point and remove the nasogastric tube, but not move ahead with the requested gastrostomy that the daughter was asking before. Um, and he explained that he had spoken with the daughter um, and told her that the peg tube would be more invasive than the nasogastric tube and was really unlikely to change the patient's prognosis at this point. And I sort of asked um, a little bit about the daughter and her relationship um, to the staff at the nursing home. Um, the staff had, had really kind words um, to say about the daughter. They thought she was very caring. She was involved in, in, in her mother's care and really was looking out for her best right. interest. Um, but the, the medical director did describe that he found her to be, as he described it, very opinionated as well as mistrustful overall of, of doctors. So let me just ask you, did you perceive that the medical director, his demeanor was defensive or angry? 
or dismissive? How would you characterize his, his approach to the daughter? You know, I think he, my sense is he believed that he is really looking out um, for the best interests of uh, the patient at this point, and I would describe it more as frustration at this point and maybe puzzlement that he felt like he had had this conversation with the daughter mm -hmm. and laid it out in his mind about this trial, and the, the daughter was really not um, accepting it at this point. I think um, it was, Linda, you interviewed the aide and, the, and spoke to the daughter initially, yes. right? Yeah. What did you find? Well, you know, the aide has been involved with the patient for a long time, so she's also, you know, a part of this picture. Um, and did find that the patient was uncomfortable, seemed to be uncomfortable, you know, with, with the tube, and that the daughter was very upset that she came and found the NG placed. Um, it was a surprise, as how, you know, how the daughter and the aide both explained it. So that, you know, also puts another aspect to the picture. The daughter had the feeling that if somebody had consulted her about the NG, she might not have chosen to do it in the first place. We don't know. And let me just clarify that because um, I think I think the issue here was that the surprise was um, that it was a feeding trial. Right. Yes, think, that there was no plan. I think that's right. we're hearing that there's a a, a difference in yes. in recall between the medical director that's and right. the daughter. Exactly. The medical director mm -hmm. feels that he discussed this as a feeding trial with an endpoint. Right. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. and that was more or less documented according to what you yes. found. Yes. However, there was no documentation that the daughter heard it that way. Exactly. Right. And when you spoke that's to the right. aide. Um, the, she sort of confirmed that they had no, she probably, she agreed with the daughter. They it felt no like a surprise. That this was a surprise, right. right. With no goal after that. And then what did, what, what did you find when you spoke to the daughter specifically? Well, there was ambivalence there because she was a little uncertain because she was never appointed officially a healthcare proxy. So she has, had been struggling with that in the past. Um, and she really didn't know, you know, what her mother's preferences would be. You know, she doesn't recall ever having had a conversation along those lines. So, you know, being the only family member coupled with kind of the amorphous nature of what her mother's preferences might have been um, really added to her struggle. You know, she's very alone in this decision. Yeah. And she's been visiting her there in the nursing home for so many years. Very devoted, watching the decline slowly. But I think probably it hasn't registered that, you know, that's what's going on. And I think one of the um, um, indicators that we have a situation here where, where we have completely different perceptions of the patient and, and different perceptions of the right course of action is that the daughter used the term feeling boxed in. Right. She feels boxed in by what happened. Uh, she thought that the, her mother would improve after the NG tube was inserted. Uh, she thought that it could be pulled because the mother would go back to spoon feeding and be able to maintain her weight. She never dealt with the alternatives that the mother's weight would continue to decline or the NG tube right. would not work. Um, she didn't hear the medical director talk about a feeding trial with a defined endpoint, um, although she understood that it was because it was after the mother had become infected with bronchitis and had lost weight relative to that episode. She didn't sort of put that together. And um, and I think the most challenging thing was when she used the word uh, starving. Starving. That she perceived that if the if the NG tube was pulled and a peg tube not inserted, her mom would starve to death. Exactly. And that she would go through a lot of pain, and that it would be the daughter's responsibility for essentially killing her mother. Okay. So this is clearly a very challenging case from both the medical and the uh, ethics perspective. Uh, just to summarize where we are right now, she's an 83-year-old woman with far advanced dementia who is now receiving artificial nutrition through a small bore NG tube, but unfortunately this tube has produced a lesion in the nose which by her behavioral responses does seem to be causing her distress. Plus it's not accomplishing anything in terms of, mm. uh, the, the, uh, in terms of increasing her weight. At this point, uh, her surrogate is facing a decision between a withdrawal of artificial nutrition, which basically means pull the NG tube, uh, or the replacement, uh, the continuation of artificial nutrition by replacement of the NG tube with a PEG tube. 
The patient's surrogate, who's the daughter, has requested the PEG specifically and has not consented to discontinuation of the NG feeding, notwithstanding the medical recommendation uh, that this is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So clearly we have multiple people involved in the care of this patient who we suspect share the patient's best interests, mm -hmm. and they are coming to entirely different conclusions based on entirely different perceptions. Yes, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, um, as we've done with all of our other cases, the first step is to think this through in terms of the, um, in terms of sort of the, um, uh, the evidence that relates to this from the medical perspective, and then discuss it in terms of its broader palliative care mm -hmm. uh, considerations mm -hmm. and how we might go forward and develop a plan of care. We want to talk specifically about the medical issues in this case. We want to talk specifically about the ethical considerations. And then finally, as we always do, we as a team feel obligated that our involvement with the case means that we come up with a plan of care that either will or will not involve our continuing management. And it has to include recommendations that resolve the issues for the parties involved. So we have a, a significant obligation and a challenge in, ahead of us, which we have to resolve in the next 15 minutes or so. <laughs> I think we also just want to encourage folks as they're listening, um, if questions occur to them, to, to enter in those questions so we have uh, yes. time to think about them and address them when we're finished the slides. Yeah, that's a very good point. In, in this particular case, um, we have, we've had left time at the end for what we assume to be a vigorous discussion that we'll have here in our team. And if anybody uh, wants to engage in that, please uh, type your questions in. Okay, so let's start talking first about the medical perspectives. and. As, as she always does whenever we're encountering a difficult case, Dr. Lugasi has gone <laughs> to the literature, reviewed every piece of evidence there is mm -hmm. since time immemorial, uh, and will now share with us what she thinks is going on with respect to artificial nutrition in patients with advanced dementia. Dr. Lugasi. Sure. So this is certainly, we're thinking about one patient here, but I'll just start off by saying that this is certainly not an uncommon question and comes across in many settings with patients of many different types of diagnosis and in particular placement of a feeding tube in nursing homes in this country is, is, is a frequent event. Um, overall, it occurs in about 8% of patients, um, but there's also quite a bit of regional variation for multiple factors. So depending on where you're talking about, it could be anywhere from 4 up to 45% of patients, so there's quite a range. I think when we're talking about placement of feeding tubes, it's particularly challenging compared to other types of medical therapies that we often think about because while we're thinking about a feeding tube, the family is often thinking about food. As and we talk about food, we're talking about not a medical therapy, but something that has an emotional attachment and social and cultural issues, all of which come together and really impact uh, a family's decision making and, and their feelings about this. But when we come down to it, when we're talking about a feeding tube, we are really talking about a medical therapy in the same way that um, a medication or a procedure is a type of medical therapy. So when we're talking about a medical therapy, we really need to focus on our decision making process while listening to the patient, but we want to present the decision-making process as an assessment of the medical risks versus the benefits and, and weighing the two against each other. Now, there are a number of reasons um, why a physician might recommend placing a feeding tube. And when your this recommendation is made, it should really be based on some type of anticipated benefit, of which there are several different possibilities. We typically think about weight loss, so it can be placed as a goal of obtaining some sort of weight gain. Um, one might place a feeding tube with the anticipated goal of increasing survival. Uh, if somebody is really having aspiration events in the act of eating, one might place the feeding tube with the goal of reducing the risk of aspiration, or if it is felt that a non-healing pressure ulcer is, is having malnutrition contribute to that, then one might consider placing a feeding tube with the goal of healing that ulcer. 
So when we're thinking about all these potential benefits, of course, we have to weigh it against the risks. And how do we do this? Well, always the best way is to try to go to the literature and see what we can learn from that. The other thing I'll point out is that we can't just think about feeding tubes in terms of all comers, but the risks and benefits are really related to the underlying medical condition. So the risk versus benefits of a feeding tube in advanced dementia is going to be different than, for example, somebody with a head and neck cancer or with ALS. So we really have to think, as I mentioned before, about that underlying diagnosis. So in this case, of course, we're thinking about our patient is a nursing home patient with an advanced dementia. So that's really what we want to focus our literature review in for this particular situation. Now, interestingly, or perhaps not so surprisingly, there's really no randomized controlled trials of artificial nutrition in patients with advanced dementia. It would be very difficult to do that type of study for logistical and, and, and ethical reasons, of course. So instead, our current recommendations in the literature is really based on um, observational studies and expert opinion. Now, there have been, as I mentioned, some large observational studies, and kind of the pooled data um, indicates, in fact, that feeding tubes that are placed in nursing home patients with advanced dementia, interestingly, have no effect on survival, have no improved healing of pressure ulcers, and have no substantial reduction for aspiration. So all of that list that we talked about before of the potential benefits don't necessarily hold up for our patient here, a nursing home patient with an advanced dementia. In addition, um, when we talk about the lack of benefit, we also have to think about potential complications and morbidities as well. And if we look at some of these same studies that look at this, these large observational studies, um, we can learn from this that feeding to patient uh, placement in someone with advanced dementia can contribute to an increased risk of hospital transfers for all of the multiple complications that can come from the feeding tube, that there's interestingly a higher risk for death if it's placed during an acute hospitalization, that there's an increased risk of multiple complications um, ranging from clogging, dislodgement, and infection, and also an increased risk for use of restraints, as we can imagine has happened with our patients, that tube came out, and that is a frequent cause to prevent that from happening of, of needing to use restraints in a patient. Dr. Lagasse, did mm -hmm. you find also this, these nasal lesions, something that's common? Yeah, particularly for um, nasogastric tubes, there's a number of, of risks. There's all the same risks that you would have for peg tube, but you can also get the nasal abrasions. There's um, a, there certainly is a risk of aspiration. There's the discomfort. Um, and there's even a higher risk with nasogastric tubes of what we would describe as feeding failure, meaning they come out or mm -hmm. they stop working. So there's a, a fairly significant rate with, with both um, gastric tubes and nasogastric tubes, but even higher with nasogastric tubes. So based on all of this uh, information, the American Geriatric Society has come up with some recommendations, um, specifically for this population, which were most recently updated a few years ago in 2014. And, and I'll paraphrase basically what they make the recommendation is that feeding tubes are not recommended for older adults with advanced dementia. Because interestingly, hand feeding, meaning that sort of careful feeding, usually purees or small amounts of food, has been shown to be as good as tube feeding for those outcomes that we talked about before of death, aspiration, pneumonia, functional status, and comfort. So all that list of benefits that we talked about before, when you pair it to hand feeding, it's basically about equivalent. And she um, has a devoted aid, just to... Yes. That is a very excellent point there and something I think we can think about right. there. In tube feeding, the American Geriatric Society also states is associated with agitation, greater use of not just physical but chemical restraints as well, which of course have their own set of morbidities associated with them. Um, healthcare use due to tube-related complications, so that's going back and forth to the hospital or the doctor's office, as well as um, instead of Improving pressure ulcers, it's actually associated with development of new pressure ulcers. And finally, the AGS position statement um, also says that tube feeding, and, they, and they, they specify here that, and this I think is important when we're talking about our um, 
decision-making process and the family's decision-making process is a medical therapy that an individual surrogate decision-maker can decline or accept um, in accordance with advanced directives, previously stated wishes, or what is thought that the individual would want in this type of situation. So the, the last point here that the ACS makes is that if, if there's a medical indication, it can be declined like any other medical mm -hmm. treatment. Um, if, if we're not sure if there's a medical indication, we might default to the perspective of the surrogate who, again, has the opportunity to consent or decline. But in, in making clear that the AGS's analysis of the information and your analysis of the information suggests that um, that tube feeding through a peg tube in this specific case is not indicated because the burdens and the risks exceed the likely benefits. Mm -hmm. And you'd agree with that? Okay, so um, obviously the medical review of the issues here make this complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, in no way does it resolve the tension that we're experiencing between the medical director and the nursing home staff and the, and the patient's daughter, but it informs the kinds of information that uh, informs the information that we have so that we can speak um, correctly, accurately about that. Uh, but obviously in this particular case, whenever we're talking about artificial nutrition, withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy, so-called uh, issues of consent, there's this very important um, ethical um, overlay, this necessity to think about this in ethical terms. And we're very fortunate today to have you here, Tim, uh, to help us uh, navigate that. Uh, I know that you've spent some time uh, looking through the case and then obviously have sat here while we've done our usual IDT. But what do you think about this case? Sure, yeah. So I, I want to highlight that, that in this case I've read the chart uh, and I've uh, talked with all of you. What I've not done that I would normally do if, if I were an ethics consultant for the nursing home is I've, I've not talked with the, the patient uh, or her daughter yet. Uh, but generally, you know, what we want to think about uh, when we think about ethical considerations is we want to really understand what the values are of all the stakeholders. And we especially want to try to privilege the values of the patient uh, because in the end, all of us are here because we're trying to do the best thing uh, for the patient. And understanding how to do that uh, should begin with what the patient thinks is best for herself. What's challenging in this case is that we don't know what the patient would want. Uh, the patient seems to have um, chosen not to talk uh, with her daughter about her condition or preferences after her diagnosis, which we should say is not unusual after a diagnosis of dementia. Um, so we don't know the patient's values and can't privilege the patient's values or preferences. What we know is that the daughter has requested a PEG tube, but we don't know why. Uh, in fact, we don't even know where the idea came from. But usually, you know, if a patient or a surrogate requests a very particular intervention, there's a story there, uh, and it's worth understanding what the story is. We know the nursing home physician doesn't want to place the PEG tube. Um, we know that uh, in his discussion with you, Maura, he made it clear that uh, the, the logic there is that he thinks the medical burdens outweigh the medical benefits. Um, so it's really... Um, for him, uh, it's, a, it's a desire to not harm the patient further. Uh, we don't know much yet about the, the perceptions and the preferences of other members of the nursing home care team. Uh, so that's something worth exploring, I think. Worth exploring because um, if the other members of the care team share the medical director's perception that the harms outweigh the benefits here, well, we've got all the conditions necessary for significant moral distress on the team. So, you know, moral distress in the literature is defined as uh, when a team is very clear about its ethical obligations to a patient, but conditions that they feel are outside of their control really prevent them from practicing in a way that honors those obligations. Uh, it creates some significant internal distress. Um, and can lead to all kinds of negative sequelae, uh, both in the relationship with the patient and the family and also in terms of things like burnout. Uh, so, um, can I just ask you, yeah. before you go on, you used the term uh, privilege, privilege the uh, patient's uh, desires and views, preferences and values. Uh, and you use that twice, and that's you know that term is not common medical parlance. Mm, yeah. So I just want to make sure we stay on the same page. So what do you mean uh -huh. when you say that if we knew what the patient wanted with respect to artificial nutrition, we would privilege it? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't mean that that um, that we would default to that necessarily. 
Um, but uh, in cases like this where the patient can't, uh, can't communicate to us now in real time, if we did have evidence of her preferences, um, one of the things that would be important for us to do, and one of the things I might do if I were the ethics consultant in the case, um, is make sure that those preferences were given a strong voice in the discussion. Um, and that we understood, um, while medically this is not indicated, she had some reasons why she may want this, or she had some very clear reasons why she may not want this. Um, so by privilege, I guess I mean, um, in the end, um, uh, that the patient's voice is an important one. And because this patient can't can communicate with us now, um, uh, there's a danger of that voice getting lost. Uh, right. So all of us yes. would, would try to take the responsibility of making sure that doesn't happen. And just even though we don't know what the patient would have wanted, the patient's well-being and lack of, of harm to the patient takes primacy. Right. right. Yeah, and then and we get back again to this, this tension that exists in the medical literature where we have no randomized controlled trials, mm -hmm. which is the highest form of evidence, mm -hmm. but we have large observational studies in populations that seem to be similar to the patient, and we also have um, a guideline um, by a respected professional organization, which was based on a review of the literature. So from the medical perspective, there's a definite tension here in terms of, what, of whether or not this patient is experiencing the potential for harm apart from just a nasal abrasion and what that level of harm is as time would go, go on. Mm -hmm. I also just want to um, make the, uh, clarify one thing, Linda. You had said when you interviewed the daughter, that um, she had heard nothing from the patient in terms of her preferences uh, regarding artificial nutrition. Uh, she didn't complete a living will. Um, right. But as you know, sometimes as we talk to patients, talk to surrogate decision makers, we try to say, you know, did, did you ever watch a movie yeah. in which somebody in the movie was had right. advanced dementia? Did you ever get a sense of what the values of the, of the patient were? Um, I'm sure you explored that with her. Was there anything like that at all there? Not that she can recall, but I think that um, the emotional implications of, of taking on her perception that she's going to be starving her mother, coupled mm -hmm. with the fact that she's the only family member and they're so attached, yeah. mm -hmm. um, I think that she felt the doctor to be cold and uncaring, not because he actually was, but because she feels that he didn't understand the emotional, um, all the emotional mm -hmm. process here. So I think that with further exploration with the daughter, we might be able to come to that point where she recalls someone. Some of this is a little bit less pointed and intense. Okay. So I think that's part of the work with this psychoeducation also. And Tim, Tim, let me ask you to continue your discussion of the ethical piece so that we can be more informed about that. Sure. Yeah. So um, I mentioned in the previous slide that while we know the daughter has requested a PEG-2, we really don't know why. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think understanding that better is an important next step. What we'll see, I think, going forward, too, is that it's really helpful to just generally understand two things about most family caregivers who are put in the position of being a decision maker. One is, I always presume that they're trying to do the right thing, mm -hmm. you know, that there's a loving intention there. Mm -hmm. um, they may be overwhelmed. They may be making right. choices that the clinical team doesn't think make sense but they're desperately trying to do the right thing. And, um, and, and mm -hmm. she's been obviously devoted. She's been present. She's mm -hmm. been there going through the process for the last five years. It's not that she hasn't participated in most of what's gone on. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, all evidence suggests, right, um, that she's a caring daughter. Uh, and the second is that um, uh, what she's doing makes sense to her. You know, um, uh, as clinicians, it, it can be difficult sometimes. You know, you hear a patient or a surrogate say, well, this is my goal and this is my preference. And you think to yourself, yeah, but the treatment you're asking for has no hope of, of achieving that goal. It doesn't make any sense. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is most people don't do things that don't make sense to them. So it's our job, I think, to try to figure out how does this make sense uh, to you. There's also the undercurrent of not wanting to let go. I mean, all of the right. irrational, you know, aspects of wanting to hold on to her. Yeah. So um, I've not talked to her, but if she's like similar family caregivers of dementia patients who are also serving as surrogate decision makers, uh, she's really struggling to provide the best possible care um, for her mother. 
uh, it's possible. And um, on all of these slides, some before and some after, uh, we've done a careful job of trying to pull articles from the literature that we think might be helpful here. So I would encourage you know, all of us um, who, who are watching as well to just note those citations. They may be helpful too. Um, we know that not only um, patients and caregivers, but clinicians themselves too, um, may not accept what is accepted in ethics and the law, which is that um, deciding to not start a treatment and deciding to stop a treatment after you start it, mm -hmm. if either decision is based on the idea that the harms outweigh the benefits, those are equivalent. Um, mm. And I think oftentimes why that's not accepted is because they don't feel equivalent. So right. psychology of stopping mm -hmm. something is different than the psychology right. of not starting something. Sure. So that may be yeah. worth exploring with her. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that. You have to wonder if she would have the same request if they had never put the nasogastric tube in yeah. sure. in the first yeah. place. That's and one and of the things that she struggles with. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, this concept of the feeding trial. The trial. Uh, the, sometimes it's a fantasy that we have if we just explain the trial right. concept right. really, really well. Mm -hmm. By the time comes time to discontinue it, it'll be easy. Right. And that, of course, is also exactly. a fantasy. Mm -hmm. so. And I think so much of it is education. I mean, we're all privy to all these different, you know, studies and articles and what we've seen in our, you know, anecdotal evidence. But um, she doesn't know. She doesn't know about this. And I think a major part of what we need to do is to educate her as to what all these processes are. Sure. So we'll move ahead. There, there's one point I want to highlight um, that uh, viewers will have seen on the last uh, slide, which is just um, getting clear on her understanding of the connection between these various feeding options and prognosis. We've got some good literature, including uh, an article just a few months ago in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management, an article just last week in Lancet, saying that patients and family members um, there's a strong correlation between the treatment decisions they make and their perception of the prognosis associated with those treatment decisions. So she's likely thinking accurately that no more nutrition and hydration will lead to her mother's death. That's true. But she may very well be thinking, but inserting a peg tube will extend mom's life months or even years. Exactly. And at least statistically, that's not true. Um, so understanding that might be helpful for sure. Yeah. So um, it's not clear if this case would require uh, mediation by a third party, someone like me or another ethics consultant, but I think the principles of mediation here could be engaged by the palliative care team, uh, could even be considered by the nursing home team. And one of the basic ones is that you want to start with points of connection. You know, the referral note that you got, Russ, um, emphasized a point of disconnection. The daughter's asking for a peg tube. I don't want to give a peg tube. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> But there are surely points of connection here. Uh, and, and the easiest one, perhaps, to identify first is everybody's trying to do the right thing and do what's best for the mother. Um, so emphasizing that uh, in a discussion uh, with everybody in the room uh, can be helpful. You know? um, and then establishing a shared understanding, really, of the facts of the case. Here's where uh, the clinician's point of view is important uh, because the, the clinicians uh, are the experts in when it comes to the clinical facts of the case. Um, so does she understand what a peg tube is? Uh, does she understand what the insertion process is like, what the feeding is like? Um, does she understand that um, there are palliative options available uh, to supplement care mm -hmm. with any of these possibilities moving forward? Um, and what does she envision as the likely outcomes for these things? Um, if we were to move to set a care plan, then uh, it would be important, uh, related to your discussion earlier of the feeding trial, it would be important, I think, to link any intervention with an intended outcome uh, and some agreed-upon indicators of whether the outcome is being reached or not, um, mm -hmm. not to have an open-ended uh, trial of some intervention. Right, right, at times. Kinds of things. Yeah. And recognizing, Tim, that you're not, you're not counsel for either the nursing home mm -hmm. or our team, uh, but this interface between ethics and law becomes so prominent in almost every case that you deal with. Do you have any comments about how we should think about the law? Well, I just think it's helpful to, to think about a couple basic facts, which is, um, first of all, when it comes to healthcare law, most of it is state-based. Uh, mm -hmm. So viewers that are with us today, um, you know, we're, we're sitting here in New York State, um, but it's going to be a little different in every state. Uh, but the role of the law in healthcare is similar across all states, which is you know, the law generally is set up to protect rights. Um, 
and it tends to apply in healthcare in two ways. One is is to protect the right, the patient's right to self-determination. Um, since we have a patient here who can't exercise that right, and we don't know what her wishes mm -hmm. were, you know, the, the parallel goal of the law, uh, which is to protect patients from preventable harm, uh, is also there. Um, so, insofar as that's the case. Um, You'll have to look at your individual state uh, statutes and case law within your state, but generally, um, you know, when there are therapies uh, that the harm is very clearly outweighs the benefits, um, there's generally no obligation to offer those. Um, uh, and it, it's not, you don't even have to think about um, the integrity of the clinician, although it's an important consideration. You think about the patient and that the law is there to protect the patient. Well, I have to say that in reviewing the documentation, I didn't really find with some of the meetings that they had, it said that way. Right. You know, the way that you just said it, um, you know, I can't, I can't, I hadn't, I hadn't read that it was said that way. The, the, key, the key consideration here is, is um, this balance between benefit and burden yes. and the mm -hmm. issue about whether or not it's, it's adequately clear cut so that a physician can say, um, I cannot do this because the, benef the benefits will not be outweighed by the harms. Uh, the benefits will be outweighed by the harms. Yeah. And in the case where there's ambivalence, where it's lack of uh, certainty about that, that's when we get into this challenging interface. I think so, um, because when, when, when the medical evidence isn't clear, then all of us, um, we have to look to other sources uh, of cognitive guidance. You know. And that's when our, our personal values come into play, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, this case, um, statistically, the evidence is clear. Uh, there's always some question about to what extent do these large observational trials apply to this particular patient in this situation. Mm -hmm. um, so we really try, I think, to, to establish some kind of an agreement um, that's acceptable to all parties. Uh, it would be really rare, I think, to withdraw a life-sustaining treatment over the objection uh, of, of a surrogate decision maker, and surely if that were something under consideration, um, you know, I would encourage clinicians to, to get some legal guidance there, um, to protect not only them, but the patient, you know. And as a clinician, we would encourage the clinician to get second opinions from other clinicians, mm. <laughs> for the same reason. So um, I think we've done a good job in laying out the foundational issues here, and discussing them in terms of the facts that we've been able to accumulate from both the nursing home record and from interviewing all the appropriate stakeholders. Now the question is, what are we going to tell the medical director who called the consult, and how can we be useful to the patient and the patient's daughter? I think we all agree, um, and I'll just preempt the discussion about this, tell me if you disagree, this is the kind of case that we will be willing to stay involved at, with, the, with the case as it unfolds, during, at least during the next few weeks or months, um, we, we will be willing to be involved in terms of um, agents who are able to perhaps um, uh, deal with the issues apart from some of the emotional uh, concerns or tensions that have already occurred and have enough knowledge of both the medicine and the ethics that we can perhaps inform a discussion that gets everybody on the same page. So everybody would agree with all that. And this is a real opportunity also to provide some education and real discussion at a deep level with the nursing home staff. You know. So let's get down to brass tacks because as you all know, um, our obligation is to offer a plan of care. And, um, and as I was teasing one of you before, a plan of care is not just that we need more information. We could need more information, mm -hmm. but then after we get more information, we need to go and establish a plan of care. That's our obligation. So the bottom line is that um, we need to understand the daughter's request in terms of the projected lack of benefit and the chance of harm to the patient. Does she understand that? Do we, how do we perceive the benefit to burden analysis here? Mm -hmm. Is it, is it uh, so clear cut that it would be um, medically imper impermissible for a physician to do this therapy because we would be harming the patient in doing that without any promise of, of benefit? Mm -hmm. Or is it less clear than that? And then what recommendations should we uh, provide to the nursing home staff, and then how can we help implement those recommendations in a way that makes it easier for everybody? So, Tim, let me just uh, ask you to help us understand this mediation process. You, you said you weren't sure that mediation was indicated in this case. Where we stand now, 
Don't you think, um, or do you think that it, it is indicated as a way to go forward? Well, it's certainly an option uh, that could be promising. Yeah, I guess it uh, it partly depends on on to what extent, if at all, the the relationship between the daughter and the nursing home staff has deteriorated. Um, to what extent you all, as the consult team, uh, would be interested in taking a more active role and maybe facilitating some of these discussions. Um, but if there if there were some impasses, uh, and if getting more of the information that we talked about uh, doesn't really result um, in in a um, in either party moving closer together, uh, it could very well be uh, that a, that a mediated discussion would be helpful for sure. At this point in time, it seems premature. You know, I don't yeah. think that we've gone down the routes that we. Yeah. I think we're just in the beginning of this. I think addressing the daughter's concerns. Mm -hmm meeting with the doctor and the daughter, with one or two of us present. I was really interested in what Tim said when he talked about assessing the, the caregivers and the aides and right. the staff yeah. and the daughter yeah. and mm -hmm. exploring further. One thing I would point out, we talk a lot about the daughter's understanding of risk and benefit in terms of the medical decision making, which is really critical. But I think the other piece that may be missing here in terms of the daughter's decision-making in terms of risks and benefits is you also have to understand alternatives um, if you're making a medical decision-making. And as we know from the literature, there is an alternative um, to tube feeding by way of hand feeding and other supportive care. And I don't have the sense that that has even been presented because it was interesting to me that the daughter described it that she felt boxed in. Mm -hmm. Someone feels boxed in, it sort of it suggests that you only think that there is one option, which may be ambivalent about it. Exactly. So we may need to kind of cut a hole in that box for her um, and consider a trial of, of hand feeding and see right. if that's successful right. Right. Um, and present the other supportive care um, that would go along in the setting of hand feeding. So what I'm hearing in terms of the pieces of a plan of care, the, the first is um, support and sort of respectful dialogue with all the stakeholders here. Mm -hmm. The second is education, so that the daughter who now feels that not putting the peg in at the nasogastric tube was told would be the same as producing starvation and an earlier death. Right. If the mother is similar to this large number of patients that have been studied in the literature, that won't occur. In other words, the mother is going to die, but the timing of her death is not going to be influenced by whether mm -hmm. or not she gets the peg. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, having the peg in might cause her to die earlier than would otherwise be the case because of aspiration or, uh -huh. uh, or yeah. some of the other morbidities that have been mm -hmm. associated with the tube. Uh, and she may just not know that. Uh, so education for the daughter in terms of the medical realities, support for her, possibly engaging in a mediational process where we we start getting the connections defined. That that seems uh, very reasonable. Uh, I guess the key issue is, and this could happen as early as today or tomorrow, if the NG tube falls out, or if the daughter pulls it out, or the mother pulls it out, the patient pulls it out. Um, if the medical director says, I don't want to do this, and the daughter says, you must do this, and they turn to us for a recommendation about what the next step would be, right. what would we recommend? Mm -hmm. yeah. Do we feel as a team that the risk and burdens associated with the tube are so unequivocal that we need to support the medical director and inform the daughter that this nursing home will not do that and it's appropriate for that nursing home not to do that and we would check with legal counsel mm -hmm. and the daughter in that case would have the opportunity to take mom out of the nursing mm -hmm. home and try to right. find another place or do we tell the nursing home director that there's enough ambiguity here and enough risk to the nursing home uh, enough uncertainty about what would happen to the patient that we would conclude that if the daughter is insistent to decide support and education, he should go ahead and insert the peg, have the peg mm -hmm. inserted. And I think we, we need to have clarity on that within our mm -hmm. team, because mm -hmm. that's where the rubber will meet the road. I, I could also say that I think um, she declined uh, a chaplain earlier on. I read that in the documentation. Mm -hmm. And maybe at this point where she's at a crossroads, mm -hmm. she might want that. And I think time is of the essence, as you said, you know, if the tube falls out, I mean, it would be much better 
to be more prepared, you know, in that eventuality. Well, then, let me ask you then, you know, very, we're in a democracy, we can take a vote, or we can try to come to consensus in our team. Um, Dr. Lugasi, would you advise the medical director? Obviously, we will try to not get in that situation. Right. We'll try to, and, and offering an option for having the nasogastric tube pulled, but offering another type of supportive care mm -hmm. that you just raised is an absolutely way to go forward, but it may not work. Right. So if it doesn't work and we have to help the medical director with a decision, what would you advise? Personally, I think given the, the content of the, of the decision-making process, that it is sort of what is categorized as, as a life-sustaining therapy, whether or not the evidence support that and so there's somewhat of a, a disconnect there. I think given that the amount of distress that clearly it, it, it is going to inflict on on the family member, um, I would not be supportive of sort of an out-and-out refusal mm -hmm. to place a feeding tube. There are, of course, when you think about it, there are other alternatives. It's not necessarily an emergent decision. One can place someone on IV fluids mm -hmm. as well and do right. a trial of hand feeding. So it's not as if it's a scenario where the tube comes out and they must be rushed to the hospital. That's right. So, mm -hmm. and, and again, reinforcing that again and again is really important. I don't think even if our team comes to the conclusion that the bottom line for us would be not to support the nursing home's direct, the nursing home director's decision to take a tough line here. Right. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that we're, uh, we don't want other avenues to be explored, you know, like right. pulling the NG tube and having uh, IV, mm -hmm. IV or subcutaneous uh, fluids at the same time that she might get spoon-fed. Does everybody agree with I, Dr. Augustine? Yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So, to yeah, navigate this well is so important too because after the mother dies in whatever way she does, the daughter now has to live a life right. holding whatever it is that we help her go through at this point in time. So, so I'm, I'm um, seeing that there are a couple of questions that have come in. Uh, some of them, uh, these questions I think we can answer relatively quickly. The first one is whether the ethical approach to the case would change if the daughter had been estranged, but now insisted on having input into the mother mother's care decision. Um, obviously, we made a big point in pointing out that this was a loving daughter. The concept of loving daughter, like most things in life, exists on a continuum. And if we weren't as sure that this, weren't as sure as we seem to be today that this was a loving daughter, would that change our decision making? And would it change the ethical framework for decision making? I don't know if it would change the framework itself, um, but it, it, it may give us pause uh, in recognizing the daughter as the surrogate, depending on the legal requirements. And whether the daughter was estranged or closely involved, you know, the team is involved in supporting the daughter's decision making and making sure that the decisions are in the best interest of the patient because we have no information about the patient's wishes. So um, a history of a close relationship or a history of a significant gap, um, it's information. But uh, I think we would more be looking at the, the projected outcomes of the decisions and making sure that they satisfy that best interest criteria. Mm -hmm. and, and it is interesting because it highlights the reality that when we're weighing risks and benefits from a palliative care perspective, we really are talking about the family as the unit of care. Mm -hmm. Because I think if, this, if the daughter was not there and the feeding tube was in place and it wasn't working, I think at least from a physician's perspective, we would just say, no problem, let's pull it. The data, data support that and it's, uh, the benefits are not it's not reasonable to think that there will be benefits. Right, homes. right. But because the daughter is there and the harm of pulling it becomes elevated because of her distress and her needs, uh, it, it alters the balance of how we think about it. The last question we have is just a, 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 a little historical issue here. Had the daughter attended any of the formal meetings with her mother's caregivers before? We we noted in the record, I think, Joyce, you, yes. you read this, that yes. she was there for the meeting in which the feeding tube was discussed. Mm -hmm. And the point, I think, is being made, or the question is being raised, was she involved in the, in team meetings in, in, during the past nine years? It's a good point. It may have a different level of distress if the daughter felt part of the care team right from the start. Exactly. And, uh, and I think the answer in this particular case was no. This was the first time that she was invited into a care meeting. Well, I want to thank my, um, my colleagues here for a very good discussion of a very challenging case. I think um, our plan right now is to uh, go out and talk to the daughter and to the nursing home director yes. and try to see if the, our 
magical ability to bring people <laughs> together is able to eliminate the tension and make sure this patient continues to get good care. But we're going to probably have to stay involved for a while. I would say so, yes. Let me just say, uh, finally, that um, I want to thank the audience for attending and uh, to let you know that our next webinar, which is entitled Palliative Care in Advanced COPD, will be given by Dr. Mona Patel, the Associate Program Director of our training program here at MJHS Institute for Innovation and Palliative Care. That uh, uh, webinar will be given on December 14th, 2017 at 12.30 in the afternoon. Please remember to complete your evaluations. They help us uh, in planning for 2018. Uh, thank you very much for your attention.